If you have your Bibles, if you'd take them and open to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. It's our last Sunday in the book of Deuteronomy. It's been a, a good study through the book. If you've not been with us, I'll do a bit of a recap as you guys are turning to chapter 32 so that we're all on the same page. We've been studying chapter by chapter through the book of Deuteronomy. And what we see there is that God has told Moses that he would not be able to enter into the promised land with the people of Israel as a result of his own sin. Moses sinned and the consequences would be that he would not be able to enter. And so he's giving Israel, God is giving Israel through his prophet Moses, one final charge, a farewell address. It's Moses' final sermon, if you will, before the people go into the land under Joshua's leadership. And so as we started the book of Deuteronomy, we saw the first four chapters are a history lesson. God's taught the people what they've done. He's demonstrated to them in their past that they were unfaithful, that they chose sin, and as a result, uh, the consequences of those sin. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness, 40 years, uh, an entire generation would pass away and not be able to go into the land like Moses. And then we move into chapter 5 and we see that Moses uh, shifts gears a bit and he begins to teach the people that as God's covenant people, there are expectations, there are ways that they should live, there are stipulations of this covenant, rules, laws that they should follow that God's given them. And then as we got into chapter 12, and really the, the, the largest part of Deuteronomy, chapters 12 through 26, we see that Moses moves into a section where he's explaining the Ten Commandments in chapter 5, the Decalogue, He's explaining those commandments with much greater detail. What are the implications of these commandments? What are, the, what are the specifics of these ten rules, these laws that God has given them? And so we see that in chapter 12 through 26. And then finally, uh, he concludes that section and he begins to wrap up the book of Deuteronomy, explaining the covenant to them, telling them why it's important, what God's done for them in this covenant that he's made with them, reminding them that it was God who worked on their behalf when they were... Uh, slaves in Egypt, God had rescued them out of Egyptian slavery and brought them into uh, what would be this land that he's bringing them to. And what we see is that God reminds them through Moses that there are consequences for obedience and disobedience. That as his covenant people, they can expect blessing if they're obedient and curse if they're disobedient. And now, last week we were in his final days, uh, Moses' final days, and, and God gave him two specific things that he should write. He gives them, Moses uh, the law and tells him to write the law. And then finally he says, write this song. And Moses composes the song. And last week we concluded by talking about why that song was important and how God would use that song for Israel. Well, now in our final week in Deuteronomy chapters 32 through 34, we see that Moses is, is, is now past his final days and he's actually in his final hours. It's in the final moments of Moses' life that we see um, chapters 32 through 34 wrapping up. And so this morning, as we see these final hours, I'll give you four uh, scenes, if you will. They're not really points, but four scenes that we see in Moses' life as he is uh, passing away. The first scene is this, the actual song that Moses wrote. We're not going to read the entire song. You find it in chapter 32, verses 1 through 43. You'll notice as you skim over it, it's not a happy song. I gave you that spoiler alert last week. It's not an exciting, joyful song. There are some moments in it where it does ascribe praise to God. But the people needed a song. They needed a way to teach themselves and their children and the generations after them of who God is 
And what God had done of God's faithfulness, God's expectations, even in the dark days of their future when they would disobey. God knew they would go astray. He knew they would disobey and be led into captivity, be led into exile. And so they have this song to to remind them that even there, they should know who God is and what he expects. And so we see that um, the song is not only a song to remind Israel of who God is, but it's a song that is given to Israel as a witness against them. Israel is given this song so that God can show them, this is how I see you. And so it's filled with poetic language. If you see this in the Hebrew, it's filled with beautiful language, but it's written like a lawsuit. Like they would have seen a lawsuit in their day, and even some of this sounds familiar in our day and age with court scenes and with court dramas that you may see on television. And so real quickly, we're not going to read the entire song, but I want to give you the outline of the song so that we can see what God's doing and what he's teaching them. You see in your bulletin there's a handout. Uh, One side of it has an introduction to the Gospel of Mark. You can just take that and flip that over because we'll get to that next week. I just wanted to give you that as a heads up so that you can know next week we are starting the Gospel of Mark. And if you want to do some homework this week, man, the preacher's giving out homework. What is is this about? Uh, If you want to do some homework and kind of be uh, ready for Mark next week, you've got that on that handout. But the other side of it is our outline for today for Deuteronomy. And you see the first thing there. Under this song of of Moses, verses 1 through 4, God summons uh, a set of witnesses. You see it in verse 1. Give ear, O heavens. And if you skip down to verse 3, God says, For I will proclaim, through Moses, I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. So just like in a trial, there are witnesses gathered. God is summoning witnesses to hear his word, to hear what he's going to pronounce over the people through this song. The second step in this outline of this, of this song is verses 5 and 6. You see an indictment of the people. All of this is in verse 5, that, that they have dealt corruptly, the text says. They're no longer children. They are blemished. They're a crooked and twisted generation. Again, using the, the idea of court language, the idea of lawsuit language in their day, the people were indicted as being the ones that had violated, the people of Israel, violating God's commands. You move into verses 7 through 14, and you see the prosecutor's speech. This would have been the opening statements, God's opening statements in a hearing. He's gathered his witnesses. He's told them what, uh, what they're being indicted for, and then he begins to start. And he says in verse 7, remember the days of old. And so just like in the first part of Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 4, he's reminding them God's going to lay out for them exactly what he's done on their behalf. He's going to remind them of how good he's been to them. You see that there in verses 7 through 14. He's given them an inheritance. An inheritance. You go further, he's found them in a desert land, and he's cared for them. And then you get to verse 10, and you have this incredible statement that they were, verse 10, the apple of his eye, that God loved them. And so this beautiful language of how God's provided for them, he's provided food and protection, he's provided safety from enemies, he's been good to them. And there's a difference, right, between just remembering what someone's done for you all of us may do that from one time to another. We may remember, oh, that, that was really kind of so-and-so. They did fill in the blank for me. There's a difference between that, us just remembering what God's done for us, and God saying to us, this is what I've done. Let me remind you how much I've loved you. Let me remind you of my grace towards you. Let me remind you of how good I've been towards you. Friends, that's what we should see every time we see the Word of God. As we open his Bible, as we open the Word of God and we read, we should see, God, you have been incredibly gracious to us as sinful people. And this is what he's doing. He's bringing his goodness in their past before them in his, in his speech. 
You move to the next section, verses 15 through 18, and you see specific charges that are brought against Israel. Verse 15, he calls them Jeshurun. That's, that's actually a, a nickname or a pet name that Israel would have had. It means the upright one. Here it's kind of used ironically. The upright one, Jeshurun, is grown fat and kicked. The God who loved them. They forsook the God who loved them and provided for them. In verse 15, they've scoffed at the rock of their salvation. Verse 16, they've stirred him to jealousy with other gods. Verse 16, again, they've provoked him to anger. Verse 17, they've sacrificed to other gods. Verse 18, they forgot the God who birthed them. The God who called them to himself and said, I'm going to create for myself a covenant people, a nation that are for my possession. They forgot the God who birthed them. So again, Israel is on the stand here, and God has demonstrated with a very long and serious rap sheet of sins just how far they had gone from him and how they had violated what he's commanded them. And then verse 19 through 33, you see the sentence. Verse 19, he spurned them. Verse 20, he's hid his face from them. Verse 21, they have angered the Lord. In 23, he'll heap disasters upon them. Verse 23, he'll spend his arrows on them. And then verse 24, wasted with hunger, devoured by plague. They'll have beasts even that are against them. And so the picture we see here, this sentence that the Lord gives them, is that it's not a pretty picture to reject the God who birthed you. It's not a good thing for us to turn and rebel against a God who loves us and who has been incredibly gracious to us. In fact, it looks like utter destruction when that happens. And so we see, even in Old Testament history, that this came to fruition the northern and southern kingdoms were conquered by Assyria and Babylon. And what God says would happen actually happened because they turned their backs on him. And then verse 27, notice this, that their enemies, their adversaries are mentioned there. And that's important because God's saying in that that he's going to use their enemies against them. That God's judgment, the sentence that's going to be carried out against his people, is God, God is actually going to use Israel's uh, enemy nations against them as the way he's going to bring about judgment. But it's also important that it mentions the enemies there because when God says enough is enough, he means it. And you see that coming up in a few verses that God will not allow a pagan nation that he may use to judge his people. He will not allow them to continue abusing the people of God past the point that he's ordained. They're at his disposal. He may use these other nations to judge his people, but there will come an end. And then in verse 34, you see the judge's deliberation. The Lord asks a question here. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? We see this a lot in the prophets. The prophets ask these these questions that the Lord is giving them a word, and they ask this question, and it's not that God is is wondering. He's up in heaven, and he's just confused, and he needs somebody to answer the question for him because he's inquisitive. No, God knows the answer. He's asking the question so that man, so that we would wrestle with the question. The judge poses a question, and then comes the answer. Look at verse 35 through 42, the verdict. Though they're guilty, and we've already seen that. He's told them what they're guilty of. He's told them what they've done wrong. Though they're guilty, and though they'll be punished by these enemy nations that will be used by God to bring about this sentence, God the judge is sovereign, and he will vindicate his people. Look at verses 35 and 36. Vengeance is mine, and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people. 
and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free. Then you skip down to verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God beside me. I can kill and I can make alive. I can wound and I can heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. So the verdict, Israel, is that Israel's nor our sinfulness can thwart the plans of God. That he is sovereign and that his plans will come to fruition. That he is the sovereign judge of the world. And though Israel will have to pay consequences for their sin, even those consequences, even that judgment is under God's control. And he will vindicate his people. And then verse 43, you see that this song, this lawsuit format ends with praise. And this might seem a bit uncommon for us. Like if you, if you enjoy watching TV shows that have court dramas or, or whatever in them, this might seem strange that this would be included, this praise that's being lifted up to God at the end of this. But we sort of get it in our culture when we call judges honorable judge so-and-so or we, we all rise when the judge takes the stand to honor them. Well, in this case, Israel, we have a holy judge, a, a judge that enforces perfect justice, holiness in every way, and in whom there is no wrong. And so verse 43 concludes this courtroom song, this drama that Moses has given them by ascribing praise to God. Look at verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children, and he takes vengeance on, all, on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. To demonstrate to us just how important these words are, look at verse 47. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. Moses is saying to them, this song, these words that I've given you, this understanding of who God is and how serious he takes covenant relationship with him is not just simply empty words, but it's your very life that you should live by them and love this God who saved you by his grace. Let me remind you, church family, we are a New Testament church. We're people under a new covenant, a covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ, that when Christ died for us, he initiated a new covenant with his people, with the church. And so even though we have a different relationship to God than Israel does, we should remember this morning, we would do well to remember that this is not just empty word for us. This is, these are not just pointless old texts for us, but it is our very life. It's the reason this morning, friends, that we can have life in Christ. He's given us his word. He's revealed Christ to us. And it's not as if this was plan A, right? That this old covenant, that this sacrificial system, that this set of laws and standards that God gave Israel was plan A, and it didn't work out. And so what is God going to do? Well, I guess we'll just send Jesus. That'll be plan B. Maybe he can get it done. No, friends, Jesus was the plan. And, and when we look at back at texts like this and we see the failures of Israel, when we look at back at, at a text like this and we see that they didn't do it, and that they needed a song to remind them of who God was, we look in the face of Christ and we see who God is, that he's given us a new covenant by the blood of his son. And as we started the service this morning, friends, in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So we read the song of Moses and we see that there are great consequences for Israel as a nation for choosing rebellion. We look at the new covenant and we see Christ who bore our consequences, who bore the wrath of God on our behalf. And that now as a result, this idea of condemnation, court language for us, Romans would tell us there's no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. That's really good news and that's the hope of the gospel. 
what Israel couldn't do, what we couldn't do, what Israel was indicted for, what we were indicted for, namely rebellion, namely not following the judge, Christ did on our behalf. He kept the law on our behalf, and there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. And so the song of Moses is needed. It's needed to show Israel the seriousness of sin and rejecting God. It's needed for us this morning to show the seriousness of what Christ bore on our behalf. But the song of Moses is superseded by an even greater song. And that's the song of our Savior. That's the song of salvation, the song of King Jesus. That he has bore the wrath of God on our behalf. So when it says in verse 36 that he's going to indict his people, they will, they will have consequences for their sin. That surely happens, and we see that that happens. But he is also born our sin. His son, the blood of Christ, has made it so that we don't bear the consequences of our rebellion. So as we move out of the Song of Moses, we move into a new section. Ultimately, Moses will finish his life, will end his life by blessing the people. It's full of hope, and it's full of grace, and it's full of words that will point them to their future as God's people. But before we get there, we see a curse. Look at verse 48 through 52. Verse 48. And that very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of the Abiram and uh, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for possession. Verse 50, and die on the mountain which you go up. That's significant. And be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died in Mount Or and was gathered to his people. Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. And because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. So in the beginning, in creation, God created Adam and he commanded him, do not eat of the fruit uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you do, you'll surely die. How did they do, Adam and Eve? They ate of the fruit. And in, in doing so, sin entered the world and sin was handed down to everyone who was born of Adam. That includes Moses. Moses is under this curse that as a result of that sin, man will die. And Moses was included there. Every one of us are included there as well, that there are consequences for sin, and that means death. And so uh, as a result in these verses, we see that even after 40 years of stellar leadership, even after 40 years of faithfully uh, leading the people of Israel to the, the, the very steps of the promised land, to the, to the front door of the promised land, if you will, even after 40 years of faithfulness, that there are still consequences for sin. And that Moses will pay those consequences. Moses still has to bear the consequences of those sin. That he will not enter into the land with the people. So for you this morning, if you're in Christ, that curse has been lifted. You do not, do not taste eternal death. You do not taste eternal death. But there are still consequences in your life for sin. We see this every day. We make decisions that are sinful, that are not as God would have us make those decisions. And there are consequences for them. And we may have to live with the consequences of those sins. We thank God that through the new covenant, through the covenant of Jesus' blood, uh, the, the consequence of death, eternal death, can be removed and that he bore our sin. But we stay, still may have to live with some of the consequences of those sins. And we see that in Moses. That as he's going up this mountain, God's told him his assignment is to go and die as a result of his own sin. Moving into chapter 33, verse 1, you see this blessing. 
And this is the way Moses' story ends. If you look at verse 1, it says, This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Now remember, Moses has just been told he's got an assignment. His job now, the only job he has left to do on this earth is to go and die. That's a pretty hard assignment. That's a pretty hard job to be told that you have to do. And you've been told to go for that assignment. Can you imagine being given that assignment? How your mind would immediately go? What's the next, next natural thought on your mind? Well, that's, that's, that's frightening. That's scary. That's, that's really scary, God. What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like to taste death? What's it going to feel like? Is it going to be cold? Is it going to be dark? There's a natural fear of the unknown that comes with death. And so our minds immediately go there. If we were commanded a death sentence today, immediately our minds would go there, but not Moses. Moses knows there's something great awaiting him after death. Moses knows there's a hope of a future and that his life does not end at Nebo. He knows that his life is not going to end on that mountain. That be his final resting place. And friends, that's the difference that the gospel makes in our lives. We don't fear death. If you were to kill this body, it's to be with Christ. We're going to be with him in eternity, for, uh, for in heaven for eternity, for all eternity. We'll be with him in the presence of God. We don't fear death, friends. That's what happens when he gets a hold of our lives and he saves us. But Moses has been told he's going to die. And so what does he do? Well, he immediately goes and starts blessing others. That's how he wants to spend his last words. That's how he wants to spend his last moments on earth. Look how he does that. A few things that we learn. Verses 1 through 5, we see that these blessings are from on high. Verse 2, the Lord came to Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. So the God who blesses is the God who reigns from on high. Paul tells us the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. As Paul's writing Ephesians chapter 1, it's not a blessing from Paul. As Moses is writing in Deuteronomy, this incredible blessing, it's not a blessing from Moses. It's a blessing from the God of the universe who reigns on high. Notice also that this blessing is given individually, verses 6 through 25. We're not going to read that entire section, but he goes through each of these tribes individually. He doesn't name every uh, single person in this 2 million uh, person population. But he mentions the tribes by name. You see this. Reuben, verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. That's kind of a strange thing to say, don't you think? If you remember, though, Reuben had had an affair with his father's concubine. And so as Moses is praying, as he's blessing the tribe of Reuben, he says, let his family live on. They were the firstborn. Let him, let him live on. Let his lineage continue. But let him be few so that others don't become like that and Israel be tainted with this kind of a sin. We don't want this trait to continue. But then you see verse 7, he blesses Judah. And he said this of Judah, Hear, O Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people. With your hands contend for him and be a help against his adversaries. So two things kind of here. Bring him into his people and help him against his adversaries. Well, who were his people? Who, who was his son? You see David. Who was David's enemy? You see Goliath. You see that he led the people of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. And here Moses is praying for future generations that they would be blessed. Well, who's David's son? Jesus. Who's, who's Jesus' enemy? Satan. 
Think about how Jesus defeats Satan through his finished work on the cross, that through the cross, death, hell, and the grave are eternally conquered through the blood of Christ. So here Moses is blessing, praying to bring a blessing upon Judah, and he's remembering David, he's remembering Christ, those that would come after him and be his people, and their adversaries. So in Deuteronomy, the concluding statements of Moses, this incredible prophet, he's praying for Jesus and the salvation that would come through Christ. See Levi next? He's a really long one. You see it's proportionately a lot longer than the others. I wonder why that was. Moses was a Levite, so maybe a little home-filled advantage there. He blesses the Levites, the ones who would be priests. You see Benjamin, verse 12, the beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. What a statement. What a statement to be made of the younger brother, the son of Rachel, that would be the man of God, that, that God would dwell between his shoulders. Think back to uh, chapter 6 where we talked about loving God with all of who you are with your innermost being, the core of who you are. This is what he's saying of Benjamin. And you see Joseph and Zebulun and Gad and so on and so forth. He continues with blessings to each tribe. And we don't have the time to mention all of these, but, but notice that the blessing demonstrates their value to God, that each one of these individuals, though they have incredible shortcomings, though they have messed up in, in serious ways, whether it be murder or adultery or concubines or sexual morality, there are a bunch of knuckleheads that really miss it. They really miss the point so often, yet Moses finds something positive to say about them in a blessing for their future, for their hope, for God to bless them, that God would not abandon them, that they would be of value to God. As God's people. So what about us, church family? Are you blessing others with your words? Are you looking for ways that you can use your words to build others up, to encourage others? Are you pointing out ways that they're doing well, that maybe your family members are, are doing well? Are you loving them and building, up, building them up by blessing them with your words? Or are you always looking at the negative, emphasizing the negative, what they've done wrong, how big of a screw-up they are? I think in Moses' final words here, he's using, in, in his final hours, maybe even minutes, he's blessing the people of Israel, praying that God would use them and, and grow them to be his people. So some application for us this week, church family. Go into your homes this week. Go into your workplaces. Go into your schools and use your words to build others up. Bless them. Second, you see that the, or thirdly, you see that the blessing is given corporately. Verses 20 to 6 through 29. So we've just seen that he goes through each of these tribes. He blesses them individually. Verses 26, we see a shift. And watch this transaction or this transition. Verse 26, O Jeshurun, he uses this word again, this pet name, this nickname for all of Israel. Verse 28, so Israel lived in safety. Verse 29, happy are you, O Israel. Verse 29 again, a people saved by the Lord. So now he's moved from talking about them individually as tribes to the nation that God has brought to himself. And look what he says about them. Verse 26, he is the only God. Verse 27, he is near to them. He is their dwelling place. Verse 29, they are happy, but he is their happiness. Verse 29, why are they happy? Why is he their happiness? Because verse 29, they are saved. He's their salvation. Verse 29, he's their shield. Again, verse 29, he's their sword. 
Think about what greater corporate blessing could we pray for one another? Could we pray for Poplar Spring Baptist Church that we would be happy, but not just happy, not just be a happy in immaterial things or the things of this world, but that we would be happy in the joy of our salvation, the one who is our sword and shield, the one who has saved us by the blood of his son, that we would find there our happiness. That's, that's an incredible corporate blessing upon the people of Israel. And so for us this morning, church family, know this. There is incredible, rich blessing that awaits you in the corporate gathering of a New Testament church. That he's brought us together as a people, a covenant people, just as Israel was a covenant people. And there is blessing here for you. And so join, be a part of a New Testament church. It doesn't have to be Poplar Spring. If God would lead you somewhere else to be, another, to be a member of another church, then plug in there and be a part of that church because there's blessing that awaits you there in that corporate gathering. There's no scenario in the, in the Bible where you see a, a Christian living as a lone ranger, living by himself, doing the Christian life in isolation. God's brought us into communities, brought us into a family, and it pleases God that we would do life as a people together, growing in understanding and worship of him through a local church. Finally, we see the fourth scene and the final scene of his life. We see the departure see this in chapter 34, the last 12 verses of the book. And although Moses will die as a result of the curse, as a result of sin, as, as a result of the consequences of his specific sin, and we see that, that, that Moses is a prophet and what it looks like in the final hours for him to live and what the, he does in the final hours of his life, we see incredible truth. Look at verses 1 through 4. We see the promise. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Nephtali to the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. And the Lord said to him, this, this is the land I swore, which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So though Moses couldn't go there and enter into the land with his people, God was gracious and good to him to allow him to see the promise. He was allowing him to see what he had told Abraham would happen is actually happening. The, 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 the promise made to Abraham was for people and land, that God would make them as numerous as the sand on the shores. He would give them a land for their, uh, for their people, and now he's given them the people. There are numbers with them, millions with them, he had a people, and now Moses is with his final glances, with his last sight. He's seeing the land, the second part of this promise. And God's showing him that he's a promise-keeping God. Do you know that today, church family? That we serve a promise-keeping God who is faithful to keep his word. If he said it, he will do it. He will bring it to fruition. We can trust in Yahweh. Finally, we see finally there an epitaph for a prophet. Epitaph or prophet. Look at verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of, the, of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. Skip down to verse 10. 
And there has not arisen a prophet in uh, since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants, to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Here's the deal, church family. As great as a leader as Moses was, and we see this incredible description of him in the word of God. And he was an incomparable leader, a man who would lead the people of God. He still died. He, he still died. He failed. Other than Jesus, all of the great leaders of the Bible, whether they're in the New Testament or Old Testament, the disciples, the apostles, any man that will lead a church today, whether uh, they're in a huge church or a small church, 100 out of 100, 1,000 out of 1,000 will fail every time. Why? Because they're sinful, fallen men. They will fail. Which leaves the people of God longing for a new Moses which leaves the people of Israel longing for a new leader, which leaves the, the church today looking for someone who will fill these shoes and continue leading the people of God. So verses 8b and 9, see the new covenant mediator. Look at verse 8. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended, and Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, and so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So even before Moses dies, in the final days of Moses' life, God tells him to lay hands on Joshua and to anoint him to lead the people of Israel because he would be coming next and he would bring them into the land of the promise. God was being gracious to give them a new leader, a new covenant mediator, one who would lead his people, one who would save his people. You see that in the name of Joshua. His name in the Hebrew comes from the word for salvation, that he would lead his people to salvation. And so Israel had in Joshua one who would bring salvation. But if you know your Old Testament history, they do enter the land, but they fall short. God does miraculous things and bring them to the land. They conquer Jericho by miracles. They, they go into the land and Israel ultimately fails. Just like the song of Moses was predicting they would do, giving them a song for when they would fail, they did fail. Ultimately, Joshua fails, the people of Israel fall, and they go into captivity, and they're conquered by other peoples. So is the Bible wrong? Is there no Joshua? Is there no salvation? No, friends. You see, Joshua here is ultimately pointing us forward to another Joshua. When you get to the New Testament and you see Jesus being the name of the Son of God, the one who was born of Mary, who would save his people from his sins, that's what his name is, Yeshua, Joshua. Another word for Joshua, Christ is the ultimate and final mediator. He is the one who did not or could not fail. He's the one that brings true, final, and eternal salvation, not just from earthly enemies, not just in the form of a land and a promise of people. He brings salvation from sin. He brings eternal life. He brings bravery in the face of death. He brings victory over the grave he's the better Moses he's the one that conquers all sin he's better than Joshua and he never fails and here's what's incredible church family just like God says to Moses I've got an assignment for you go up on the mountain and die that's your assignment God says to Jesus in the garden I've got an assignment for you go up on the hill of Calvary and die except there's one great difference friend here's the difference that where Moses failed Jesus conquered Moses stayed on the mountain and Jesus couldn't stay in the grave he resurrected they couldn't keep him in the grave they couldn't keep him dead he's the son of God and he resurrected to new life in three days and this is the hope of the gospel friend that Jesus conquers where Moses fails that Jesus is the one who brings salvation he is the covenant mediator the one that we all need and so 
just as Moses brought them to the edge of the promised land, and yet because of his sin, he could not go in. He had to stay on the outside of the promised land. Jesus doesn't stop short of the promised land. His life didn't end at the cross. His life didn't end at the tomb, but that he will march us into the promised lands by the blood of his own self. That Jesus, through his own blood, will bring us to glory. He did what Moses couldn't do, friends. He did what Joshua wouldn't do, friends. He is the covenant mediator. He is the one that died on our behalf. He is the better Moses. Friends, this morning, if you don't know this one, the Christ, would you put your faith and trust in him? He's the only hope we have of eternity. He's the only hope we have of forgiveness of sins because like Israel, we will mess up and we will fall short. We do every day. And the hope of the gospel is that we need a better Moses and Christ is that better Moses that conquered death, conquered sin by his own blood. Let's pray. Church family, as we pray, I want you to search before the Lord your own heart and ask the most serious and most important question that you could ask. Do you know this one, the Christ, who is the better Moses that's died in our place? Allow God to search your heart in these moments as we pray. Father, this morning we give this time to you. Father, we see in your word that even as great as a leader as Moses was, he ultimately failed, which leaves us longing for a new covenant mediator. And God, we praise you this morning that you sent your own son to bring about that new covenant by his blood. So this morning, God, I pray that we would repent of our sins, that we would commit to following you, living a life that would honor you, God, if there's one here that this morning that doesn't know you, God, I pray that today will be the day that they repent of sins and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross for salvation. Jesus, we praise you this morning that you didn't leave us short of the promised land, but that, God, through the resurrection, Jesus, you have brought us to be a people, a covenant people in a relationship with you. And that when you were called to a hill to die as Moses was, God, you killed sin. Father, we give you this time. Would you in this moment stir in our hearts, work in our hearts the truth of the gospel? We love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As Corey continues to lead us in song, let's worship the Lord together this morning in response. If you'll stand with us. Here's the invitation this morning, friends. If you've not put your faith faith in Jesus Christ and repented of sins, I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. You can find me right now or we can meet after the service, but don't, don't leave today not knowing where you stand with God. Let's worship him in response.